Welcome to the Vision Podcast, a podcast that explores news, topics, and information of interest to the faculty, staff, and friends of the Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences. I'm your host, Karen Brown. And I'm your host, John Burrow. Greetings and welcome to the 28th edition of the Vision Podcast. NASA, along with the other agencies, are planning to launch the James Webb Space Telescope on the 18th of December. The telescope is one of the most innovative ever made that will be capable to explore distant galaxies. Today, we are glad to host Dr. Angel Tanner, Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Mississippi State University. Dr. Tanner is interested in planets outside of our solar system, and her research involves detecting new plants as well as uncovering how they form. Dr. Tanner, welcome to the Vision Podcast. Hello. We are thrilled to have you here and we are so excited about this topic. And if to begin for our listeners, if you would introduce yourself and discuss your research. Okay, well, hello everyone. I'm Dr. Angel Tanner. Um, I'm an astronomer over in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And uh, most of my research is about extrasolar planets. So these are planets that orbit uh, other stars. Um, So far we've discovered a few thousand extrasolar planets and hopefully within my lifetime, we may even discover life on those planets. Now, how did you get interested in this line of research? Star Wars. <laughs> Is it? So, yeah, tell us, were you a young child? Um, so how yeah. did you get interested? I've been into it since I was, uh, I was one of those little kids who was definitely into space. I mean, I went to space camp. I was building rockets when I was little. And uh, there was a TV show a long time ago, the original one in 1979 called Cosmos, which was really one of the first astronomy documentaries out there on PBS or the other places that it aired, it had uh, Carl Sagan. And while there's lots and lots of uh, astronomy documentaries nowadays, it was really one of the first of its kind. And he was a spectacular science communicator. And so that's really what got me, got me into it. My parents read science fiction too. So I was very lucky there, but uh, yeah, I've been into space for most of my life. And then, it wasn't until the mid nineties that we started finding these first extrasolar planets. So at first I was studying the, the black hole at the center of the galaxy. And then I switched over to doing exoplanets once I graduated college, uh, got my PhD. I wanted to ask in particular, uh, this James Webb space telescope, I actually ran across it first on a social media post about why is no one talking about this? On <laughs> we <the> are. News. <laughs> And I started just do, doing some digging, and it's it's quite fascinating. They're saying it's one of the more important la- launches that we've had in decades. So I wanted to ask you uh, if you could briefly explain the project and what it's designed to do and why it's important. Yeah, so it is, it is pretty important, and it's been going on. Maybe it's kind of uh, people have forgotten about it, because with a lot of these missions, they take a very long time from conception to funding, to building, to testing and then launch. And then you cross your fingers and everything goes okay. But this is basically the uh, replacement's not the right word, but it's the follow-up to Hubble. So Hubble's getting up there. It's been up, it was launched in the early nineties. 
and uh it's it's still it's still working although hubble's been having a, a couple issues lately but a lot of its electronics are getting kind of old and it's been having a lot of shutdowns so in order to try to keep you know astronomy at the frontier especially in the in the united states you know, we've this is this is the new thing to launch and so it's bigger than hubble so hubble was 2.4 meters across think of a meter as a yard roughly and then this one is uh, six, six and a half meters across. So anytime with astronomy, you want a bigger telescope, as bigger is better for astronomy. So it means you're gonna see things that are further away, things that are fainter. And then as usual technology, look how, look how much the iPhone has changed in just the past 10 years. Technology improves considerably quickly. Um, so this one's gonna be, uh, it's yeah, the most scientifically advanced telescope we're gonna send up. And so, yeah, the astronomers are super excited because we're definitely going to see stuff we're never, we would never have seen otherwise. And you really have to go into space for a lot of the stuff because you want to get above the Earth's atmosphere. Because if you look up at night, you can see that the stars twinkle. And that makes all of the astronomy images kind of blurry. So if you get above the atmosphere, you get rid of that. So space is a good place to be for all this science. And I would assume uh, with your research that this this sort of technology or this project really aids your future research about being able to actually get images further out yeah so you mentioned galaxies that is the, when you look at the james webb uh guide which i was just looking at the pamphlet it really emphasizes that we're going to be seeing the base galaxies in the universe when the universe just formed but of course, in my area of research, yeah, the, the other main focus is going to be getting direct images of extrasolar planets. So a typical extrasolar planet, if it's a Jupiter-like planet, a planet the size of Jupiter near a star like the sun, it's about a million times fainter. That, that's still pretty faint. Um, if you're trying to study planets like the Earth, because you're trying to look for, you know, eventually we'll want to see if these things might have life like we know it then those objects, if you put them in orbit around a star like the sun, they're a billion times fainter. And we, we're getting close to it, but we just can't quite image something so faint next to something so bright right. from the ground. Another analogy that NASA likes to use is imagine trying to see the light from a firefly uh, f flying next to a lighthouse bulb. I mean, that's, that's not even the, the, the thing that we're trying to do. And so, again, we have to go into space to do this kind of stuff. And I like this kind of uh, studies of extrasolar planets because it's very straight. Well, it's kind of straightforward. <laughs> You're just taking a picture of the planet. So we're literally going to be getting photons from the planet itself. Now, we're also going to be studying a different type of a planet called a transiting planet. And that kind of planet goes in front of the star, just like Venus transits the sun when it passes in front of the, the sun sometimes. We had one of those a few years ago. Uh, these planets are actually traveling in front of their host stars. And because of that, we're able to probe the atmospheres of those planets. And that's insane, because that means you can really start just understanding what these planets are made out of. And then whenever you start looking at the atmospheres of the planets, which are like the Earth, then you can start looking for some really interesting things that might indicate whether or not that planet could possibly sustain life. And that's, and that's, that's like a big push for NASA right now, is looking for habitable, is the buzzword, 
habitable Earth-like worlds? Why do we want, and it may sound like a silly question, why do we want to know that? How does that impact? Well, it's just answering the question, are we alone in the universe? So we're still, one of the things that the Kepler mission discovered that we did not appreciate was that we think now that every single star out there has a planet, or at least one planet. We didn't know that 20 years ago. I mean, back in the mid 90s, we didn't even know if there were extrasolar systems out there. They weren't discovered till fairly recently. And now we now think that every single star out there has at least one planet. We now think that a large percentage of them have at least one planet at the right distance from their star that could host life. And then now we're gonna go and figure out if those planets have atmospheres that could possibly let life form on them. At least life that we know it. So we're looking for things like methane, <laughs> carbon dioxide, water, ozone, stuff like that. And this may answer the, the question I'm gonna ask you now what you just said, but it may be obvious to many, but some wonder why we spend so much money towards space programs such as this one. What would you say to somebody who thinks that way or has asked you that question? Yeah, so there's a lot of different answers to that. And one thing, and a lot of it is the way that I think scientists and also the press a little bit talk about these missions. This, this JW was over budget, so that was not great. And NASA does need to change the way that it manages um, future missions, and we're working on that. But one thing you need to realize, especially for something, for any mission that gets sent out, ignoring the whole discovery is cool and science is cool stuff, is that these missions take 20, 30 years to build. So I think a common word we like around here is jobs. And so they, I mean, yes, it may be a, a billion dollar mission, JW's 10, um, but it also employed a few hundred, if not a few thousand people for the past 20 years. When, when, when Congress gives us money, we don't get to just go to the, we don't go to Walmart and say, yes, please order me a, a space telescope. <laughs> right. They have to be built all over and all over the world. I mean, so JW has... Uh, four different instruments on it. It has the actual spacecraft and much like the Hubble, not the Hubble program, the space shuttle program, which was built all over the South. Um, some of you older generations out there might remember that different parts of the space shuttle were built all over different parts of the South um, and then assembled in Florida. And so, yeah, a lot of it, it, it still, it sounds like it's expensive, but it's still jobs, it's good. And then, of course, yeah, space is cool. <laughs> so there's the obvious, you know, space is cool. And we have to, I would never have made it as a doctor. So I have to do something with my, with my love for science. And I love it. Our, our, our audience at home or listeners can't see it, but you're wearing a shirt with stars on it. I love it. Yes, that. I thought it was going to be on. I forgot. I, did, I thought it was going to be on video. I totally got all nerded up for you today. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I know, like, for example, when I was in school, people would go, yeah, space is really important because obviously science is cool, but also styrofoam and so much R&D yes. plastics comes from that. Uh, are there any hopes of, or any ideas maybe that NASA has of what's going to come out of this project? There's a whole, there's actually, you said that, I'm thinking, thank you for reminding me, there is a whole website because I think NASA started getting tired of those questions. Yeah, right. I think it's called spinoffs. NASA. So there was like a spinoffs website, uh, NASA spinoff. And um, 
it's not, uh, I think plastics might not be the best thing to brag about right now in this, in this part, right. but it was weird stuff. Like even like the valve for a heart, an artificial heart and just lots of stuff like that. But if you're interested in all the stuff, it is spinoff.nasa.gov. Okay. And um, I mean, as far as this, a lot of us actually appreciate, we're currently appreciating uh, a lot of the things that we have built for these types of missions and that anytime you take a selfie, you know, you're welcome <laughs> because it's been, <laughs> right. it's been astronomy and sciences like that. Any, any science where you want to do digital imaging has definitely been developed uh, thanks, you know, is, we, we've helped develop the digital cameras you have in your phones. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've been collecting digital images since the 80s. I remember some of my, my professors were talking about whenever they were collecting data with a two by two pixel detector. So now we're dealing with megabytes with 20 or 40 megabyte cameras and they had like four pixels. <laughs> So the, your, your digital x-ray that you get at your dentist, um, any type of imaging that you can do with your phone or any type of imaging program, a lot of that got motivated doing the work that I do. So I feel like I'm mostly connected to the imaging stuff, but also a lot of the uh, imaging analysis that we do, especially for the original Hubble, when they launched Hubble, someone screwed up somewhere and um, it was blurry. So before we, they went up and fixed it, they used something called deconvolution to try to clear it up. And now medical science uses that to help improve the resolution in x-rays. So a lot of the analysis too has a spinoff to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just don't appreciate all the different things that we see every day that are thanks to NASA programs. I'm sure you get asked this question, even as a communication professor, I get asked this question. If a parent says, my child wants to study astronomy, what can they do with it? How do you answer that question? What can they do with it? Oh, you can do, well, so a physics, a physics or astronomy degree, um, you can do almost anything. Actually, physics degrees, more, more than, because I ha- you have to get both, usually if, at the undergrad level. I was a double major. Um, you can go into the stock market. Of course, we would beg and plead for you to please go into education. Uh, maybe not Mississippi, sorry, until we start paying our teachers more. But uh, we obviously need lots more educators um, out there doing STEM. But yeah, I, I have friends who go off and do, they work on Wall Street. You can go, a lot of the logic and the programming that you're doing, if you're more of a creative type, you can go off and do well, data science is a huge thing right now, but I was even thinking about um, video games. I mean, the f- video games have physics drivers, so that I've even seen a couple of jobs looking for people with physics backgrounds to help improve video games. So there's definitely a wide variety of things you can do, not just, you know, become a professor or be a planetarium operator. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's just basically having that mathematics slash physics slash computer programming is the big thing. I always tell my students, go off and learn Python and you'll be employable for days. Because uh, yeah, that's what we, that's what I use a lot too. There's lots go. of things you can do. And I know the astronomy and physics program puts on events uh, at certain times of the year that try to engage with the local community. 
what's a good resource for people for our listeners who may just be in the Golden Triangle region area to maybe do stargazing or something like that? Yeah, we've been a little shut down due to COVID, but I think we're going to start ramping back up. So one thing that's definitely going to happen next year is we're already starting to plan the science night at the museum. Looks like it might be on the weekend. It's in February. I'm sure uh, Karen will do a great job advertising that once we get that more set up. Um, usually, again, I got I'm the one that runs all those. <laughs> so it's up to me and my students to start um, getting that ramping back up. I think uh, usually social media, I tend to post things on, of course, different, the, the, well, Facebook is old now, the Twitter, I tend to tweet about it. So you can follow, I forgot the name of it. I'll get my students to follow and start posting some stuff on Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook. And then I put things in the old fashioned stuff like the newspaper and all that. So we'll, we'll definitely start advertising. I have a list. Um, but I probably maybe not this semester, but definitely in the spring, um, if things go as they're trending right now, we might have some public nights. Yes, we definitely have not had some public. We have some nice new telescopes to play with. So okay, cool. we definitely like to have some public nights. There's a meteor shower happening in a few in a week and also catch my uh, I'm on the uh, once a month I'm on the uh, WMSV to do the my little segment if you happen to catch that I usually say what's going on in the sky and, and um, uh, people can get updates on this I'm assuming on social media such as Facebook yep. or Twitter and also the, the department website so yes yes that's I'm also the webmaster so it's all up to me <laughs> if I don't get the word out it's my fault you can control the message just kidding <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem I gotta do it yeah yes well, we cannot thank you enough for everything you bring to the Mississippi State community in Starkville. Um, we look forward to those telescope and um, nights that you will be having in the future, and we will get those promoted for you. And we appreciate you being here. No, we want to thank you, Dr. Tanner, for taking the time to be with us. And for our listeners, if you have an idea for a podcast or have a question, please email Karen at kbrown at deanas.msstate.edu. Thank you so much for listening. We are glad that you joined us for this edition of the Vision Podcast. Be sure to visit our website, www.cas.msstate.edu for more information about the College of Arts and Sciences. Please be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We'd appreciate you helping us spread the word, letting others know about the podcast. You can also stay up to date on news and information about the College of Arts and Sciences by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences, learning through discovery.